And even as we engage in the, the, the politics that demand our attention day by day and the changes uh, uh, that we need currently, we have to also imagine a, a, a future in which um, we will no longer be constrained by capitalism. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Our last panel for the day celebrates and honors the leadership of Black women over many, many decades. We are so very excited to be joined by the legendary, iconic Angela Davis, the infamous Andrea James, the shooting star Latasha Brown, the organizers organizer M. Adams, moderated by the unconquerable Dr. Barbara Ransby. I'm so excited to moderate this panel at uh, the 2021 Beyond the Bars conference. I mean, we can't be together in person, but we are together virtually. And this is a fabulous panel, uh, a very strong, exciting panel. And I'm, I'm really happy to be with you uh, today for this conversation. I'm going to start off by inter, uh, inter, uh, introducing our panelists. And then we're going to just have a roundtable conversation. The rubric of this panel is Black women's leadership, uh, Black women's leadership and resistance. That's a big topic. Uh, but we have people who themselves uh, have thought about, talked about, written about, and and been in the forefront uh, of struggle and resistance. So, um, so it'll be a very rich conversation. Uh, the first person I'm going to introduce is Andrea James. Andrea James is a lawyer is founder and executive director of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, founder of Families for Justice and Healing as Healing, uh, and author of Upper Bunkies Unite and Other Thoughts on the Politics of Mass Incarceration. Uh, she is a 2015 Soros Justice Fellow and recipient of a 2016 uh, Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights uh, Award. And we are very happy to have her with us. Uh, then I'm going to introduce M. Adams. M. Adams is a community organizer and co-executive director uh, of Freedom Inc. Uh, M's uh, father has been incarcerated most of her life, and she comes from a community that has been at the extreme targets of police violence. In March 2016, uh, M's mother transitioned after fighting cancer and many forms of violence. Uh, M is also a parent and sees her family as a primary motivator for her work. As a queer black person, uh, M has developed and advocated for strong intersectional approaches uh, in many different movement uh, venues. She's also uh, one of the leaders of the Movement for Black Lives and co-author of Forward from Ferguson, uh, a paper on, on black community control over the police and author of Why Killing Unarmed Black Folks is a Queer Issue. And then uh, uh, we have Latasha Brown. Latasha Brown is co-founder uh, of Black Voters Matter, 
Black Voters Matter Fund and Black Voters Matter Capacity Building Institute. These are initiatives that are designed to boost Black voter registration and turnout, as well as increase power and marginalize predominantly Black communities. Latasha is the visionary founder and co-anchor of a regional network called the Southern Black Girls and Women's Consortium. Uh, it is a 10-year initiative to invest in organizations that serve Black women and girls, and the goal is to create a new approach to philanthropy by allowing every component of the program, inception to execution, to be created by Black girls and women uh, in the South. And last, but of course not least, is Angela Y. Davis. Angela is a longtime political activist, radical scholar, and author, and feminist abolitionist. She is the author of a number of uh, powerful and influential books, Women, Race, and Class, Our Prisons Obsolete, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and Blues Legacy and Black Feminisms. She is a distinguished professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and her intellectual reach has touched and engaged movements from the U.S., Brazil, South Africa, to Palestine. So that is our lineup. Uh, and we, we're going to, I'm going to uh, not go in the order that I introduce people, but I'm going to start with, uh, with Angela Davis. You know, the topic of this panel is a, is a broad one about Black women's leadership. So without essentializing Black women, uh, and since it's Black it since it's Women's History Month, not Black Women's History Month, is it? No. Uh, but I want to ask you to uh, to offer us a little bit of a history lesson based on your own activism uh, and scholarship. What are some of the stories and names we should remember and acknowledge as in thinking about um, Black women's thinking about and celebrating Black women's leadership? Uh, what are some of your what are some of your thoughts, Angela? That's that's an open ended question. You've written about black women, cultural workers. You've been a part of the movement for many years um, in many different places on the planet. Uh, are there names uh, that you want to hold up or lessons uh, from black women's struggles that you want to start us off with? Uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you so much, Barbara. It's uh, really an honor to be on this call with um, with you and with Andrea and Latasha and M. Um, yeah, what what can I say? Um, don't ask me to name names uh, because uh, an hour, which is the time allotted for the panel, would not be enough to name all of the names I would want to uh, uh, suggest. But I guess I can say that that I, I feel drawn towards black women whose um, left politics um, also mean that they aren't usually in the public spotlight. Uh, um, as you know, Barbara, large numbers of women have only begun to learn about Ella Baker, uh, precisely because she has inspired um, so much of the contemporary um, attitudes, so many of the contemporary attitudes toward leadership, especially within Black Lives Matter. And thanks to your book, um, she has become available to ever larger numbers of, of people. Um, I, I think about Claudia Jones, for example, uh, who um, Carol Boyce Davis uh, wrote about in this wonderful uh, book called Left of Karl Marx. And if people didn't know, she is literally buried to the left 
of Karl mm-hmm. Marx, so that if one goes to Highgate Cemetery in London, uh, to the very left of the huge monument marking Karl Marx grave is a somewhat uh, um, less monumental uh, gravestone for uh, Claudia Jones. Uh, I think about Esther Cooper Jackson. Um, yes. I, I think about Dorothy Burnham. Both Esther and Dorothy are still alive. Uh, Dorothy is about to celebrate her 106th birthday next month. Um, and certainly they represent uh, those uh, Black women who've been struggling um, um, uh, to change our world, to change our society. Uh, so I, I think I'm drawn towards those Black women who have um, raised questions about the larger socioeconomic order and who, who whose leadership has helped to move us uh, in the direction of, of revolutionary change. But mm-hmm. I also recognize that it is... Um, it is uh, large numbers of black women whose names we don't know, whom we have to learn how to pay tribute to. Uh, yes. uh, you know, all of those women who refused to ride the bus in Montgomery in 1955, uh, many of whom were uh, domestic workers uh, and whose names probably will never be available to us, but we still have to um, honor them because if not for their work, we would not be where we are uh, today. Um, um, but of course, um, yeah, you know, black women save the world before we save ourselves. And, and, and I, I think Latasha knows that. Uh, uh, and we know that black women were responsible for the results of the last election, including what happened in in Georgia. So uh, thank you for all of the work that you and 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 all of your sisters and comrades have done, uh, Latasha. Uh, and I think this notion of collective leadership is so important to go back to uh, Ella Baker. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, uh, I would also say that we we have to learn how to stretch and uh, expand our vision mm-hmm. and to think about women from other contexts, other national contexts, uh, uh, as we imagine a a world in the future where the nation state does not uh, confine us in the way that it does today. Uh, But I'm thinking about, uh, for example, Marielle Franco in Brazil, uh, whose uh, assassination we just uh, observed uh, yesterday. Yesterday was Third anniversary. Um, the, the third, third anniversary, yeah, at March 14th. And I know this is going to be, um, this is record being recorded for a later broadcast. Uh, yeah. Thank you for holding up all those uh, those names. I was just on a conversation and it, we were reminded about Marielle Franco and, of course, Dorothy Burnham. Dorothy Burnham, about to turn 106, I mean, it speaks well, you know, fight the good fight and live a long life, right? <laughs> Exactly. Indeed, indeed. indeed. Uh, And and your own um, uh, longevity in the struggle, Angela, I think, you know, uh, being on the right side of history for uh, for all these years is something that inspires us every day. Uh, Latasha, um, Angela mentioned you in the work in Georgia. You're throwing down. Uh, And I I heard a video by you um, with you in it, you know, talking about the struggle 
in 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 Georgia in this latest uh, electoral struggle. And you you put it in a broader context. You said we were standing up to fascism, mm-hmm. uh, and and I thought that was that was pretty pretty powerful. Uh, say a little bit. We've talked a little bit about history. Uh, talk a little bit about this current moment and the role of Black women's uh, leadership, particularly around electoral justice. Well, the first thing I did right was the day I started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize and hold on, hold on. You know, I always start. I wish I could do that. (laughs) See, that's that's just powerful. You know, I I always start with song for a couple of reasons. I do think that part of it is kind of quintessential around what inspires me about Black women and part of the story of our contribution that goes um, untold in some ways that part of it is, in many ways, we have been seen as these workhorses. And so we get work done, right? But I think part of the biggest contribution is that we are literally, we are spirit healers. That part of Black women have always used our voice um, in a way that we're actually giving We're we're giving substance and life um, to the circumstances in our community, giving hope. And even when I think about, you know, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, who is someone who inspired me, you know, that used her voice in so many different ways. But the reason the way they found her and remembered her is she was a sister who was singing at the meetings. And I think about Nina Simone and I think about Billie Holiday. I'm, I'm raising this because I think that there's a part of the work that we show up in really igniting our spirits and reviving our spirits that part of what oppression does is it's not just the politics, it's not just the analysis around what is happening to us, but there's something that has to be um, that we that we tap into, which is our spirit, which is part of what I think our gifting is. And so even currently, you know, what is happening right now, I think that oppression has had um, a, a certain kind of impact. This the traumatic experience we've had for us to not to believe in ourselves, to believe in our own voice, to believe in our thinking. And so I think what has been centered, even what happened in Georgia and what happened in this country is that fundamentally when black people were stepping up, it wasn't because we believed in the system that fundamentally something in us, um, something was awakened in us that literally we had agency and that even in the midst, at the end of the day, we less than 13% of the population, but we knew that there's a space, there's something about how we've used that from in the, in the, in the, church tradition, in our in our faith traditions, in our movement traditions, that there's something around how we can ignite the spirit to actually move and really tap into a larger part of our humanity, even though everything around us wants to um, um, to make us feel like like we're, we're that we're subject, that our liberation is contingent upon white folks acceptance of us. And so I raise that because I think that when we're looking at now, I do believe that there's a particular kind of awakening. You know, I do think that there's a certain kind of posture right now that while it looks like even what we're experiencing in Georgia right now uh, with with currently around, you know, there, anytime there's been back of black progress, there's been white backlash. Right. You know, the problem is 
Uh, one of their challenges is they always do severe. They do three things. One, um, they always underestimate black folk and the spirit of black folks and the spirit of resistance in our community. The second thing is, I think that there's always, it's always the same book. It's that you can, you can almost, it's like, like we knew this was coming, right? You know, we knew that was coming, unfortunately, you know, and third, I think that there, that those who refuse to evolve, um, will meet the way of the dinosaur. And so at the end of the day, there is an evolution, I think, of thought. There's an evolution of how people connect to humanity. There's an evolution of how people even think about gender, you know, gender and identity and race. Mm-hmm. And so in the context of all of that, you know, while on one hand it looks like, okay, we're having the same thing that's happening with Jim Crow, I think the response is not that I think the system is changing or America is changing. I think that there's a certain level of, of um, there's a certain awakeness that is happening throughout um, uh, throughout our communities and throughout the world, quite frankly. You know, I remember once upon a time that even making writing grants, we couldn't say black people in grants. We would have to say people of color if we were doing a program. And so there are some shifts um, that are happening right now in this moment. And so what I think um, this moment is there's an opportunity that transformation is happening, that at the end of the day that there is, I don't think that we're seeing the the level, the, the rise of Trumpism and the, of the racism. It's not because they're winning. It's actually because they're losing and they know it. And so I think what, what we're seeing on the institution level, I think what we're seeing, even in the expanding of analysis of everything is being questioned. I mean, it's a good thing, right? And so I do believe that there's a particular window of opportunity right now that people are being politicized. Some of it is out of, you know, pain can politicize you and open up a space. Trauma can do that. Um, And also there's a, you know, when we think of last year from the George Floyd uprisings, every single state in this country had an uprising. When we look at the identity of how who, who who were on the front lines. And so, you know, as I interpret this moment, I think this is a moment Um, For us to really kind of I think that there's a reordering around and a realignment of how we think about um, these systems. And part of it is, I think, uh, happening because of the organizing and the Black Lives Matter movement. But I think part of it is we're seeing the fragility of democracy. We're starting to see the cracks in this system that that people on on a large scale, you know, um, that we haven't seen that COVID actually brought the opportunity open for that. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think the historical moment and Angela has talked about this, too, in other contexts of the conjuncture of crises create a vulnerability. What looks like strength is actually desperation and weakness uh, of of, of kind of growing right-wing movement. But, you know, both you and Angela have talked about uh, Black women's leadership, but you really are talking about a particular kind of Black women's leadership, a progressive Black women's leadership, a radical Black women's leadership. Um, And I want to turn to M now because M within the movement spaces I share with M has always pushed us for this kind of what I think of as radical inclusivity. So because there are conservative Black women, actually, Uh, there are, you know, sort of mainstream corporate Black women, They're, they're all kind of Black women. But we're talking about a spirit of resistance and politics that 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 many black women embrace, uh, but it's the politics that we really want to zero in. Or, and, and why is it important, you know, you know, in terms of really also mistakes that movements have made in the past for this kind of uh, radical inclusivity um, and really having um, our eye on, you know, a trans and queer uh, 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 black folks in our community and talking about the politics of black feminism. Hmm. 
I'm always excited to talk about Black feminisms. Uh, so thanks for the question. So my introduction to Black feminisms was about deepening and widening the we of Black people. So that's actually how I enter into thinking about what Black feminisms can do for us. And so, you know, perhaps in a very simple way to put it, it was about understanding all the different ways that these systems of oppression, so white supremacy, gendered racial capitalism, cis-heteropatriarchy, ableism, all the things are acting together as combined forces that order the world. And in ordering the world, all Black genders are sites of hyper-exploitation. So notice I said all Black genders. So feminisms is not synonymous with only caring about women, though certainly women are centered. Women and girls quit trans intersex folks, but feminisms is about my feminisms, radical black, queer, trans feminisms is about the undoing of all those things that I just named. And to that point, everyone should seriously take up the work of studying, being part of practicing and living black radical trans feminisms. And who wouldn't benefit from reproductive justice, the end of capitalism, dot, 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 a whole host of other things. So why must our black feminisms be radical? And in particular, why must it center trans and gender nonconforming folks? So the first point, which is probably the moral and the ethical point that people always point to, which is that trans people exist, gender nonconforming people exist. I exist, here I am, and our lives too matter. So absolutely, we should care about the morality of what's happening to Black trans women, Black gender nonconforming folks, the intense violence and repression and proximity to death that we are constantly experiencing because of the way the world is ordered. And so I think that should be enough to take to the streets. But if it is not, here is scientifically why as serious radicals, and I take it up or believe that everyone who's joining this is serious about uh, change and transformation. So as serious radicals, why we must undertake this as a politic um, scientifically is for a couple of reasons. So one not only will we be able to gather more folks or center more folks in our work and our movements, continuing with black feminist traditions, but also we would have a more comprehensive way of understanding the thing that we are up against. Mm -hmm. So understanding and having a black trans politics means that you understand cis heteropatriarchy as a system and you understand the complex or nuanced ways in which we should begin to think about repression, oppression based on assigned sex as opposed to gender, as opposed to gender identity, so on and so forth. It gives us a remote, more robust and a more dynamic way of understanding the thing that we're against. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, by doing that, it then gives us important offerings about what it is that we can imagine and build to be different. So just to give one quick example of what I might mean and, you know, a bit out of the abstract maybe is Having a sense of cis-heteropatriarchy allows us to think about not only that black trans women are facing intense violence along black as, as long with other black cis women, but having that analysis gives us a way to examine family differently mm-hmm. and gives us a way to think about what happens to people who breach social contracts differently. It allows us to challenge this concept of normativity inside of the black community in a different way. And by doing all those things, we then create more pathways, I think, for people to move fully more into themselves, to everybody's gender expression, different ways to reimagine femininity, masculinity, how we are together, regardless of our individual sexual identities and gender orientation. Mm -hmm. 
And then I'll quickly say and close here is, you know, I really do think black feminisms helps us to know and to center and think critically about all the different dimensions of power. And what I do think it do, does that, that is really important is it does not separate identity out from power. So we live in a neoliberal society that's all about labeling and labeling things a lot. And that while that is important, how I and what I call myself, it is not separate from these systems of power. And I think black feminism helps us match identity with experience plus power. And I, mm-hmm. that's why I think we all need to take it up seriously. Thank you, Em. You, you packed a lot into that answer for sure. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, heteropatriarchy and, and racial capitalism and the larger structures of our society into which uh, we, we, you know, we, we um, um, uh, over which we respond with our with our black feminist politic. So, Andrea, you know, the work you do is so important um, around black uh, women and girls who are incarcerated. And oftentimes we talk about feminism or progressive politics. We're talking about people who are, are incarcerated or have been incarcerated. And, and a lot of places in our movements have not centered the voices, leadership, uh, experience emerging out of uh, the work that you do, which is why it's so important. Your voice so eloquent. Um, say a little bit about uh, um, your work with incarcerated women and girls, you know, this is Beyond the Bars uh, conference, and we're talking about uh, the challenge of, of the carceral state and the goal of abolition. Uh, you have, you know, spoken about this, organized around this. Tell us a little bit about your work and how it fits into this larger issue uh, of Black women's leadership and resistance. Well, we were women who were uh, in a in a federal prison when we began to organize ourselves. And it was uh, in 2010. Uh, Michelle Alexander's book had just come out. Uh, we were reading. Um, Angela's books were not allowed in the prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, my congratulations, parents, Angela. Right. <laughs> that means, that it means something, right? It didn't defeat my parents from making copies of of, of books and, and and writing a little note on top and sticking them on top of us for us. We used the classroom in the in the back of the prison to organize, and we also organized using Ruthie's book, Golden Gulag. And so um, those are really the readings that that uh, began to help us understand that we could organize ourselves. And so in 2010, we heard this uptick because of uh, uh, Michelle Alexander's book uh, uh, just caused some sort of uptick in the country about the need to end what was described then as mass incarceration. And uh, we were about in Danbury, the federal prison in Danbury, we were about at that time, almost 2000 women crammed into that prison and we heard nothing about ourselves. We heard nothing about uh, the struggles of trying to parent from a payphone. We heard nothing about our children uh, and the struggles that they were going through uh, back home in our communities. And we sat in the uh, yard one day and a group of us decided that uh, we were going to use our voices somehow, some way to get our voices to reach outside the prison walls to be heard. The Center for Media and Democracy then exposed ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And we used to just to keep our sanity every night. Uh, we would walk 
the track in, in the prison just to get outside and just to get some air um, and to stay outside as long as we could. And we would listen on our Claire transistor radios, this unpacking by the Center for Democracy, Media and Democracy of Alec and, and them being the architects of this thing that they called mass incarceration. And we listened to that and we were like, huh, wow, really? Well, we're going to figure out a way that we can do that on the outside from the other side, uh, from a space of abolition. And we did at that time in that prison yard declare sitting at that table that our goal was going to be to end the incarceration of women and girls. We haven't wavered from that. We've gone through a significant struggle behind making that and declaring that and standing on that as our goal. Uh, but that has been our work ever since. And, and increasingly, when we came home, we still struggled as women uh, to be centered in the conversation. Even during that time, um, over the years since 2010, uh, when it comes to a conversation about ending um, what they still sometimes refer to as mass incarceration, um, uh, we don't hear the voices of women who have had the direct experience that know what it's like to be live on a prison bunk, to be separated from our children and our communities and our families. And, and also about the history of our struggle as women who held down our communities for all of those years, you know, through since slavery of, of holding our families together and caring for our loved ones who are entangled in this vicious system. And so, um, we really struggled in the beginning because even in that conversation, men were centered in that. And we fought to create a platform for women, trans, gender nonconforming family who are in this movement space with us as abolitionists to have a platform where we could be heard in these spaces. I'm talking about in church basements. I'm talking about in the conferences and in the gatherings and in the convenings in the communities um, and at places like Beyond the Bars to actually have uh, uh, and not be afraid to have a gender specific analysis to this work and to come into this space um, um, uh, carrying that and not being timid about it. Um, and that was what we set to do at the National Council. And then we started to bump up against more recently um, the same people that we had learned while walking that track and reading Angela and reading Ruthie about the architects of mass, inca of mass incarceration. We started to bump up against them at tables that we were at that were centering people like the Koch brothers, that were centering these architects of mass incarceration and expecting us to negotiate and to be a part of crafting things that they were now drafting. And that was just outrageous to us. That was just um, uh, just something that we could not do. And so we were very determined um, to uh, make sure that we focused on um, uh, 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 following the guidelines of abolitionist principles. And we also decided that, yes, we did create a platform for uh, our sisterhood, our family to come out and to have their voices heard as directly affected people. Um, but that we demanded that if you want to share your life story as a person who knows what it's like to sleep in a prison, to be on a prison bunk, uh, that's fine. That's your story. And you tell that story and we need to have millions more of us sharing that story. But if you step outside of that space and you want to start to enter into the space of politics, of policy, 
you damn well better uh, uh, educate yourself. Get into some study struggle sessions. You know, read, understand whose water you're carrying. Because uh, in creating a platform, we also created a platform for a number of Black women who weren't politicized, who didn't understand the historical and political context of what got us to where we are today. And uh, it became a problem. And so we're, we're in that space now of recognizing the importance of study, of, of, of understanding uh, the history um, of this work um, and of learning uh, from all of the people who are on this screen with me today that I am so honored to be having this discussion with about abolition and the, and the framework that we must demand that our people do this work through. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. Um, you know, we're talking about Black Women's Legion. Let me just also advertise this. I'm not going to be the mediator because I think maybe you all might want to follow up on each other's points and questions. So, you know, don't don't see me as a regulator. I'm not going to be that. I'm just a facilitator. So um, but I did but I did see a nice segue uh, to, you know, back to Angela for a minute in, in terms of this idea of um, abolitionist feminism. Right. Rumor has it you are working on a fabulous book with some other abolitionist feminists. But, you know, um, Andrea is reminding us of the need for that political analysis. We talk about black women's leadership and so forth. Um, but there is there is a kind of brand of feminism, if you will, carceral feminism, bourgeois feminism, different types of feminism that have a certain vision uh, for women's progress that is deeply steeped in those systems M was talking about. But uh, but Angela's work and I think, you know, your practice, but certainly this this book as well points to a particular approach to um, to abolitionist work that's feminist and a particular approach to feminism that's abolitionist. Um, can you say a little bit about it? You're muted. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, you know, first of all, um, um, thank you for mentioning the book. Uh, it's uh, one of the hardest things I've ever done because uh, four of us are writing the book <laughs> <laughs> together. <laughs> and um, it's, um, of course, Beth Ritchie, Erica Minas, Gina Dent, and, and, and myself. Um, and we had actually decided to try to write a short book on abolition feminism uh, before the pandemic. So we were already writing on Zoom uh, and already doing what everybody is doing now in, in, in terms of communicating uh, during the pandemic. Um, so let me say that abolition feminism is anti-racist feminism in the first place. It's anti-capitalist feminism. Uh, and it follows in the tradition of anti-slavery abolitionism and anti-death penalty abolitionism. Um, the point is that some institutions, speaking about the abolition uh, uh, part of it, are so repressive, so violent, so anti-human that they cannot be reformed. And I think increasingly, People are recognizing this about the institutions of policing and the institutions of, um, of imprisonment. Throughout the history of both in 
both of these institutions, there have been constant efforts to reform them. As a matter of fact, you might say that the very history of the prison is a history of attempts to reform the prison. The reform began to happen at the very origin of the institution itself. Uh, and then we know, of course, that uh, policing in the U.S. has its roots in slavery, in, 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 in the slave patrols. Uh, and, and these reforms that have been repeatedly called for over and over and over again have actually helped the institutions to become more repressive, more racist, more racist, more repressive. And I don't know why we can't understand now that reform is a myth. That reform is actually the glue that holds these institutions together. And if we don't break out of that framework of always calling for criminal justice reforms, we will simply be on the same treadmill going nowhere. Um, so abolition needs the anti racist, anti-capitalist feminism I was speaking about. Not only because we need to keep women and trans and non-binary people in our vision, but because feminism can help us think more radically, to develop more radical strategies, to understand, for example, of the relationship between carcerality and capitalism. Um, when I speak about feminism, it's actually a kind of Marxist-inflective feminism that encourages us to think deeply about the structures of society. Uh, um, and it's a capacious feminism, um, a feminism that desires not simply to liberate women and non-binary people, but to liberate working class people, to liberate poor people, people of color, all of all genders. Uh, so we started to write this book because we feel that abolition needs feminism. And, and actually in moments of crisis, um, such as the, the one we're experiencing uh, now, there's a tendency um, to become narrower, uh, to think about racism in, old, in the older terms, to think about racism largely um, in connection with the impact that it has on men. Uh, uh, and we need, we need the breadth, we need the depth that, uh, of the anti-racist, anti-capitalist uh, feminism uh, offers us in order to have this um, um, broader perspective. We don't want a, an abolition that's influenced by heteropatriarchal ideas, and we don't want a carceral feminism. Um, so it seems to me that uh, 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 what we need is what we've decided to call uh, abolition feminism, uh, um, because it reminds us that we need revolution. It reminds us that even as we engage in the, the, the politics that demand our attention day by day and the changes uh, uh, that we need currently, we have to also imagine a, a, a future 
in which um, uh, we will no longer be constrained by capitalism. We have to, to, to free our minds to think about the possibility of uh, emancipatory futures in which um, uh, there will be free health care, there will be free education, in which uh, 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 the prison does not have to serve as the uh, place to deposit those who have uh, been rendered uh, uh, um, um, a part of the surplus populations yeah. that capitalism uh, creates. Uh, so this is why I think... Uh, uh, it might be helpful. Hopefully it will be helpful. Hopefully yeah. it will encourage people to think a bit deeply. That's all we really want to do. Well, the answer is just the answer you gave right there, I think, is um, pushes us to have a more robust uh, analysis. Right. And all, I'm going to come to all of you and ask, you know, what kinds of campaigns and demands do you think? Latasha, did you want to jump in? I did. I want I'm, to, I'm reading your body language. I, I wanted just to kind of just share, um, you know, just kind of the importance and reiterate what Sister Angela just said. You know, part of what I've, I'll share my own experience. I am uh, I live in South Fulton, Georgia. It's a new city that just um, incorporated. It is um, majority black, vast majority black. Um, the average medium income is $92,000 a year household, which is extremely high for black communities. And we've created this city, South Fulton, and it's the exact same thing <laughs> that we said we were leaving, right? The exact same model. And so I mean, part of what I do think that is, and, and as we introduce these different frames, that part of what we have to do is not just continue to be responding to what exists, but we have to radically reimagine every system or we will recreate what we're familiar with. Yes. And so part of really being able to, um, I remember, I always share this story. I remember going to the Olympics in, in England and there was this belligerent, I won't go through the whole story, but there was this belligerent um, drunk man that I was scared to death because I was scared that the police were going to shoot him. And then to the point where I was looking for their guns and then I didn't, I had no clue that 98% of their, that over 90% of their force don't carry guns. Mm -hmm. I had never imagined for me, the identity, the way that I know a police officer is they have guns, right? I had never even imagined uh, that a police officer could not have guns. And I'm, I'm raising this because I think part of why we literally have to create um, these 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 different frames and really push our people that we're not just constantly responding. We're responding. Even the work that we do in terms of our electoral justice work, the work that we're doing in that space is one. I'm very clear. It's about harm reduction. But we also have to really be able to bring and expand these frames, as my sister said earlier, that actually get people to st start thinking about the possibilities of what exists without power. That we have to literally be able to help lean into that. But I think part of that is we also have to create space for people to envision, to giving people permission to envision, to also being accessible around language. Oftentimes we will get attached to particularly movements. Um, and I think the, the radical, I, I think that, that we will get attached to language, right, in a way 
that actually disconnects us to yeah. our from our community and our people. And so I just offer that I do believe that in this moment, that because there is a particular kind of weakness of people are recognizing, you know, I have a, um, my aunt is 87 years old and, and now she's talking about, we, we got to have something different. This is, this was Miss American democracy herself. Right. <laughs> right. And she is like, they ain't going to do right. So what are we going to do? And my point is, in these openings, when these openings come, like instead of all of our energy and just responding to what is, this is the moment that we have to introduce new concepts. But we also have to be mindful that the language is accessible, that the ideas themselves are co-created and collectively, not collectively inspired, but also developed, and that we create the grace and space for our community to be a part of the envisioning of what we want to do to move forward. Beautifully said. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yeah. Rumor has it you're an organizer. <laughs> That's what I hear. Well, listen, CT Vivian, I will just say that CT Vivian, um, years ago, I never would attach to, I, I used to believe that to call myself an activist was arrogant. I, like, I, I felt like people should, I had such esteem for that. And I still, you know, and so one day um, CT Vivian um, told me, sister, you're a master organizer. And that was it. I was like, from that day forward, I was like, I'm an organizer, y'all. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to embrace it. That's beautiful. Uh, I want to uh, pull M back in and then I'm going to come back around uh, uh, to you, Andrea. Uh, but, you know, we, we talk about abolitionist feminism and a lot of people, I know Beth Ritchie and others, you know, came to their uh, uh, abolition feminism through uh, anti-violence work. So uh, M has 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 talked to me a lot and has, has pushed a lot of people in Movement for Black Lives also to think about an abolitionist frame that also deals with the issue of gender based violence. Right. And 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 figures out, I think, in the spirit of what Latasha's saying, that it's not just what we're against, but what we're for. It's not just abolishing, but it's building. Um, M, you want to speak a little bit to this question of the importance of keeping uh, uh, gender based violence in our minds as we talk about abolitionist demands? Mm-hmm. I think that so much of my work at Freedom Inc., which is the organization I'm based in in Madison, is about working with survivors of gender-based violence and centering them and having them in leadership of the abolitionist movement. I do not think we can get to abolition without seriously addressing what we do with harm and violence inside of our communities, whether having this prison system exist or we replicate another because we have not dealt seriously uh, with the issue. And part of that work, one of the things that we do is we do reframe reframe how we even talk about it. So we've been really using, instead of using the term gender-based violence, we've been saying patriarchal violence, right? Because when people hear gender-based violence, they think about women, and then somehow something happens where they think it's about what a woman didn't do, should have done, could have done, would, you know, ought to be different. But we want to point to what the problem is, and the problem is patriarchy. And so using that frame of patriarchal violence, we then can talk about all the things that are expressions of patriarchal violence, including prisons. And so it's, it is embedded in our framework for how we say and what we even think of what the issue is, and that's patriarchal violence inside of prisons and violence inside of our relationships, so on and so forth. And um, by doing that work, I think that a couple of things can happen. So one, 
If we center survivors in our work, not only will we be able to have more people be with us, because I do think there's a lot of people who are with us and saying that there's a, pr- a problem with police and a problem with prisons, but we lose our folks when we don't take serious their needs, right? If we don't take serious our folks' needs, then here come the conservatives and the right-wingers who organize them around their very real fears, right? And so just as good organizers, lifting up Latosha, just as good organizers, we've got to respond to what our folks' daily needs are. And so by centering folks, we can do that. The other thing that I think is possible or what needs to happen, and I know this as a survivor, is if we if we do not make the links, right, we end up doing something that could criminalize a survivor. So also in our work, we see the amount of women, queer, trans folks who end up getting locked up for trying to survive the type of patriarchal violence um, that they're experiencing. And the other thing that I think is really important um, inside of that, or what I think is possible, let me say this, what I know is possible inside of our work to really center the fight of abolishing patriarchal violence and how we do our abolition work is that not only will we be able to take down the prisons, but we'll be able to take down all the ways that prisons cause harm. So right now, many of us still think about these spectacular, this, the spectacular forms like the police shot them. We'll also then begin to account for the sexual assault done by police and prisons. We'll also begin to account for the rape done by police and prisons. We'll also begin to uh, deal with all the different ways that police and prisons violate our body autonomy. And those things are missing from the conversation when we think we can deal with quote unquote gender-based violence as a secondary issue and not as a primary issue of the abolitionist struggle. So I think the time is now for us to um, center the fight to abolish patriarchal violence as how we are going to go about abolition. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Andrea, you have um, talked about the importance of uh, uh, of an abolitionist agenda, but you you've also spoken about participatory budgeting. Talked about uh, a whole number of. Am I right? Did I get that right? Did you? Part- yeah. Okay. All right. Yes. Um, yes. So so talk to us about demands and campaigns and issues and the you know how are we translating. Uh, we know about voter repression. We know about the violence of the police in the streets. We know about uh, so many of our people without uh, housing. But what are some of the issues we should be uh, holding up now in this um, abolitionist feminist tradition? Well, one of the things that we do is we always make sure that we center the goal that we set for ourselves so that we never lose track and we we just literally center that and move in from that direction. And we had to figure out how do you operationalize this immense goal of ending incarceration of women and girls. And for us, it meant that we went around the country for three years, literally inside of prisons, state prisons, county jails, federal prisons. We went to small kitchen tables in Appalachia, in the South, in California, back home in Roxbury, where I'm from. Um, we can tell. Uh, <laughs> and everything in between. And we spoke to women, uh, girls, our trans sisters, gender nonconforming family. And we talked about uh, what is this that we need to do? We sat underneath an American flag in the prison yard every day that we were in that federal prison. And you will never, ever, ever look at an American flag ever again. You feel the weight and the oppression 
and the violence of the state. Uh, and that doesn't change. And so we knew to reach our goal, we could not rely upon this system dismantling itself anytime soon or even within any kind of timely manner for the needs of our families and our communities. And at the same time, there was a narrative that has extracted millions and millions of dollars out of the space from organizers uh, that was an, uh, uh, a narrative that was called reimagining prisons. And we were tired of that narrative. We didn't want to reimagine prisons any longer. And we didn't want that to be the the uh, taking up the space and the energy of the thoughts. And so we did that three and a half, uh, that two and a half year listening tour and then took the last six months and dumped everything on the table and brought our sisters back to the table to figure out what is our framework going to look like. And we named it Reimagining Communities. And um, it is inclusive of all the things that we've learned from Mariam Kaba, from Rukia Lamumba in Jackson, Mississippi, a people's assembly process, participatory defense. It includes participatory budgeting, which is at the bedrock of this work, because what we had to do was to teach ourselves to look at where the investments in our communities and in our neighborhoods have gone, because we live right now where I'm sitting, where my family has lived in this house for five generations in Roxbury in the most incarcerated corridor in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And we do our work under reimagining communities in those most incarcerated corridors around the country, led by the women who um, are uh, formerly incarcerated. And every bit of our work includes our sisters who are inside on the prison bunk still. They advise us and they're a part of every step that we make. And in reimagining communities, we literally create hyper-local organizing, hyper-local organizing, uh, led by uh, the most directly affected women and girls in our neighborhoods. And it includes starting with participatory budgeting, participatory defense, transformative justice, people's assembly process. You're not coming up in here anymore talking about you're going to represent us if you are not part of this people's assembly process. And we create out of the participatory budgeting, Barbara, that you were referring to, um, a people's budget. So that you have all of these other budgets, but now you got the people's budget and you have to contend with what the people say uh, that they need and that they want. Something that Rakeel Lumumba has been a phenomenal leader in teaching us about with her brother Chokwe in Jackson, Mississippi. And so we took all of those pieces and all of those components and said the prisons are going to be there. The prisons are buildings. They are obsolete as far as we are concerned. They are places where um, we will gut our people from. And so using our framework of reimagining communities and all of the incredible learning that we are receiving um, from women and family, movement family around this country, taking those best things and making them work so that we can uh, drain those places that they call prisons of our people. Thank you. Thank you for that. You know, all of what we're talking about really is um, using abolition as a lens to talk about a whole set of problems, not only systems, right, you know, but but solutions. And and you're alluding to that and talking about participatory budgeting and other things. I want to ask each one of you, you know, uh, M, you've been involved in uh, uh, Movement for Black Lives, Breathe Act and uh, Latasha's doing some amazing organizing. Angela always thinks on the meta level about these uh, questions as well as a practical campaign. So I want to ask you all, what are you optimistic about and what do we need to be building at the same time that we are talking about 
uh, dismantling uh, prisons and the carceral state? What should we be building? Uh, what should we be demanding? What should we be creating, not just demanding, but creating uh, at the same time? So uh, I don't know who wants to take that one on. If, if you also want to build off of anything that's been said, we're winding down the last you know few few minutes or so. But I want to get these these last little nuggets of brilliance from you all. Latasha, my dear, I see I see I see a comment coming. You know I you know I think part of our approach. Um, even while I was thinking about uh, the work, um, when we were just talking about the work of Rukia, uh, we actually are, that's an intersection of a lot of the work that we're doing. She's on our board. We're actually rap- replicating that and supporting that kind of work. And so part of what I think we have to do is in many ways, you know, I think that it's a, it's a um, response to capitalism and this nonprofit industrial complex that we have allowed this to be the single issue. Black folk, like when have we had the luxury of just like being single issue? Like, you know, the, the, the bottom line is there's something about approaching this as we're building the ecosystem out, that there's all of these connect these connections. And so I think part of our work now is really to be able to connect our movements. I'm actually, that gives me hope. I'm seeing that in ways now um that I, i'm seeing where 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 even in the work that we've been doing in the electoral space it's not like just civic engagement groups we're working with abolitionist groups we're working with groups that um are doing work around environmental justice and 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 um climate and so my point is i think that part of our approach is to not get caught up and i do think philanthropy is the fault i mean is is the call created that that created kind of this frame that if you want it um if you want to get resources you need to have one issue and focus on that issue and go hyper local in that particular issue. And it created in many ways, it it, it chopped up the work, mm-hmm. right? And disconnected us in many ways. And so what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing this resurgence of, of this kind of this interconnectedness up to the work where we're building the ecosystem out. And so I think that there's kind of like three things. The first thing is we've got to fight the oppression at hand. So what we have to do is reduce the harm right now. There's just no doubt about it. We've got to stop the harm. There can be no healing and the pain is still ha- happening. Mm-hmm. So we've got to stop the harm right now. I think in the, and, and that's one of the pieces in the short term. The second thing is as we do that, as we approach that, we have to build kind of this organizing infrastructure. There's always been infrastructure in the black community, including um, when we were on the on, on the uh, uh, we were enslaved. And the third and final thing is that's the vision piece. I think that we have to radically reimagine and be able to create spaces for people to radically reimagine. Great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All true. All true. M. Adams, and then I'm going to go to Andrea, and then we'll end on Angela. <laughs> but did you want to get in, Angela? Oh, no, it's all right. Okay. I'll, I'll go with the, uh, what are you? Okay. All right. <laughs> M, Andrea, and Angela. So in, in the beginning, when you were introducing me, Barbara, you talked about how my father was, I'm 35, he's been incarcerated for roughly 30 years. What is possible is his freedom. And y'all, my father is sitting in my kitchen right now. He was recently released from um, incarceration in December. And I am so clear that that was not possible without movement. That was not possible without decades of people making the, in- 
making the issues known, fighting, divesting, defunding, abolition, and building the world that we want. And so that is what's possible, is that families can have a chance to be back together. He has a chance to be free. And so it is not, um, it's real, right? Like I get to have my pops, you know what I mean? Like that's really all I can say. And I think that that is what's possible um, when we fight the fight. And so I just want to shout out the movement. And I think not only can this be a reality for me, but it can be a reality for so many more that we can have um, a chance of having our family back in a very just sort of blanket and serious way. Thank wow. You. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I'm sure he's so proud of the work that you do. So I'm so I'm so happy for you, Andrea. Well, I want to welcome it. home. Welcome home, Am's dad. Um, We're just what, calling pops. Uh, pops. <laughs> welcome home, pops. Um, really, I'll just briefly state, you know, as Latasha said, we have to build these infrastructures, lots of infrastructures, lots and lots. And for us uh, at the National Council, we built the reimagining communities. And then we said, OK, we have this infrastructure and, and we challenged ourselves. We stepped out. We um, created uh, direct cash disbursements that is money that is not controlled by government entities, not controlled by governors and, and mayors. We, we did it. We created a fund uh, for those direct cash disbursements for our sisterhood uh, who have come home, who are struggling to feed their children, particularly during this pandemic. And so we put those kind of structures together, direct cash disbursement. We put together uh, what does it look like to actually create an alternative to calling the police? That that sounds easy. (laughs) That is incredibly challenging. Uh, But you have to just take a step, one step forward and say, okay, we're going to start with five people in the neighborhood who said they were interested in being a part of a project. Uh, We learned about pods. Miriam taught us about pods. So we said, okay, who's your pod? We literally are in this process of 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 taking this opportunity of creating an infrastructure that was created by women in and outside of prisons and one step at a time, whether it's direct cash disbursements, whether it's transformative justice, whether it's healing circles, whether it's a, a, a call line that is separate from 911, whatever that is to every day. Whether it's a farmer's market, we just created a hydroponic farm here in, in Roxbury wow. um, to 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 feed the mamas and their babies who have, you know, formerly incarcerated. We're the last hired and we were the first fired uh, because of this pandemic. And so we just wanted to say we got a framework every single day. Take one step to say, how are we going to create something and see how that begins to form? Thank you for that. Wow. Angela Davis, you want to give us the last word, my friend? I don't know about the last word, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I want to say also um, I celebrate Pops. Uh, You know, give give him our our love. And and I want to say that this this panel uh, makes me realize how optimistic I am uh, uh, listening to all of you and, and and thinking about the work that Kathy and Cheryl and all the people in Beyond the Bars have done uh, despite the pandemic uh, to get this message out. Uh, um, and, and, you know, there's some people who assume that we're on the other side of the movement, that it has waned. 
because they think of movement only when they see masses of people in the streets. And of course, that was exciting. Uh, uh, the intensity, the numbers of people, never before have so many people demonstrated against racism in the history of this country. Uh, uh, even though we know that the majority of white people voted for the wrong person during the last election. But, but anyway, uh, that'll change. I'm convinced that that will change. Uh, and, 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 and now, of course, is the time to begin doing the work within institutions. Uh, and I'm excited because I see all kinds of institutions uh, um, hard at work, some of them because they know that is what is expected of them and they engage in what um, you know, young people call performative activism. Uh, um, but, but, but there's serious work that's going on. I'm on the board of SF Jazz, for example. And, and, and we're hard at work trying to transform the organization. And it seems to me that what happens during this period of relative quiet is going to um, uh, demonstrate the value of, 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 of this moment, of this particular conjuncture. And finally, I want to I want to say something about internationalism, yes. um, because I think that is where we're lacking. And, and, and that is where we have to go. And as I, as I, as I was listening to M talking about uh, the importance of addressing um, patriarchal violence, uh, I, I was remembering that that connection became clear to me in the context of work I was doing internationally when in Brisbane, Australia, uh, Sisters Inside, uh, um, developed a campaign that was called Stop State Sexual Assault. Mm. And the point was that sexual assault is not only committed by individuals, but it's committed by institutions. It's committed by, 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 by the prison. And one of the uh, most obvious ways is the strip searching and, 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 um, internal uh, cavity searching uh, that happens as a matter of course. Uh, uh, and if I had time, I would tell a really interesting story about how that campaign began. But for us to be able to think of the state as an agent of sexual assault transforms our capacity to work against uh, uh, gender violence. Uh, and, and of course, we know that um, Marielle Franco from Brazil uh, uh, is combined her work against uh, racism and, and on behalf of the LGBTQ community and for military against militarization of the police, and that is inspiring to us. Uh, um, I think it's important because we live in the U.S for us to be disabused of our ideas, of any ideas that somehow we have the answer. Um, we can learn a great deal from what is happening in Brazil, in South Africa, uh, uh, in um, Kurdistan, and all over the world. So I just um, want to say that, um, you know, as a communist, as a communist with a small c, uh, mm -hmm. I, um, I've always been an internationalist and I've always, uh, found hope uh, 
uh, all over the planet. And I think this is the time for us and our movement here in the U.S. to expand our internationalist uh, reach and solidarity. Beautiful way for us to close out. Uh, you know, we started off with this big, capacious category of Black women's leadership and resistance. We have seen the breadth and depth of Black women's leadership and brilliance, uh, progressive and radical Black women's leadership and brilliance uh, uh, on this panel. Uh, it is testimony to um, the vision of Beyond the Bars and, and its planners that they brought this amazing group of women together. And I'm just honored to have moderated, uh, appreciate, learn from, and am inspired by the work that you all do uh, every single day. So thank you so much and aluta continua. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.